0: Dr. Jason Lancaster
1: I once read something that that talked about my role as a pastor and how part of my job is to keep people from sinning. It's like I'm standing on the edge of a cliff representing sin and people in the church come close to the edge. For those of you who like to hike, perhaps you've seen cliffs. Well, Imagine this cliff of sin, and people like to come close to the edge. And my job as a pastor is to say, stay back, get back. If you jump off this cliff, you're gonna have dire circumstances. And this is what happened. People will say, well, pastor, I really appreciate your heart for me. You must really love and care for me. Thank you so much. And then they jump. And then the next crew comes along and they wanna jump into sin and I say, stay back, stay back from the edge. You don't wanna jump off this cliff of sin. It's really gonna be bad for you. Look at all the splattered bodies down below. And they'll say to me, Pastor, bless your heart. You love us and you care for us so much. Thank you for loving us. And then they jump. And this happens over and over and over again. And after a while, I get sick and tired of warning people don't jump off the cliff of sin. It's going to be terrible for you. And sometimes I just want to, to give up. And then something unbelievable happens shock beyond shock. I jump. Isn't that what happens to all of us? We hear from the word of God on on Sunday morning. We're encouraged through our devotionals. But isn't it amazing that we all still sin? That we repeatedly jump off the cliff over and over again. It's not a new phenomenon as we just read the story of Jesus' disciples deserting him left and right at the most crucial time of his life. Every single one of them jumped and bailed on Christ. But here's something amazing. Christ knew it was going to happen, and yet he still chose to go to the cross to save people like them and like you. Isn't it amazing that in all our craziness and foolishness and jumping into sin, we have the amazing love of Jesus Christ? And specifically, the Bible tells us in Romans 5 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unless you think that you need to get your life put together before you come to Christ, let me assure you that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. And that is amazing love. And as we look at this story today of the disciples bailing on Jesus and how Jesus shows them grace and mercy, my hope is that by the end of today, you'll be blown away of His grace for you, a sinner. Now, we're in Matthew 26, and the the passage is a part of something we call the Passion of Jesus Christ. The Passion refers to the events surrounding the suffering and death of Jesus. And this morning, we are going to look at the Last Supper. This symbolic meal highlights the suffering and death of Jesus for sinners, And as we have a lot of sinners in this passage where we have the prediction of Judas' betrayal and the falling away of Peter, and right in the middle, we have the Lord's Supper. So today is going to be different in the sense that this is an extended communion, meditation, and invitation. We are soon going to take the Lord's Supper. You may be wondering, why have we not taken it yet? We always do it before the sermon. Well, this morning, we are gonna have the sermon lead into it as it's going to be an extended meditation on God's Word leading into communion time. So this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go through the passage a little bit. We're gonna have a, a time of examining ourselves that I'm gonna transition over to the gathering, Pastor Jim's gonna come up here, he is going to finish off the sermon and lead you into communion as I finish off the sermon into the gathering and lead them into communion and hopefully it's going to work. We shall see. So let's let the word of God prepare us before we take the Lord's Supper. Let's start in Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared The Passover. The feast of unleavened bread would last seven days and it was kicked off by the commemorative Passover meal. And if you don't know what the Passover meal is, well let me explain it to you. The Passover meal, along with the sacrificial lamb, was to remind the Israelites of the Lord's deliverance from Egypt. During their time in Egypt, the blood of the lamb was placed on the door frames of their homes so that the Lord would not destroy their homes, but instead pass over them to the destruction of the firstborn of the Egyptians. In keeping with tradition, the disciples want to know where they should go to prepare the Passover. Jesus points them to a man who will make provision in his house for them to have the Passover. As Jesus anticipates his suffering and death and his last meal, it's going to be crucial for his disciples to understand what is happening. Look at verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Talk about a shock. Jesus is making an absolute solemn statement that one of the 12 was going to betray him. You already know who it is, but the disciples at the time did not have a clue. Verse 22, being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me." Now come on, all of them have dipped food with him, so it will be one of them, but who? Verse 24, the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The Scripture predicts in the Old Testament the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. It is prophesied. It is going to happen no matter what. And yet, Judas also chose to enter into full-blown betrayal. It's not like he is a robot and it just must be him. Both are true. It is prophesied and yet Judas also chose. And Jesus says it would be better for Judas not to be born than to suffer eternity in hell. Did Judas go to hell? Yes, he did. Acts 1, read it later in case you're wondering. Verse 25, Judas chimes in and Judas who was betraying him said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Judas is just kind of playing along with the rest of the disciples and wondering out loud if he's the betrayer. Notice that the others call him Lord, and what does Judas call him? Just calls him Rabbi. And so Jesus calls his bluff and affirms that Judas is right on track. I want to make sure you understand what's going on here. Jesus loves you so much that he endured the betrayal of Judas to go to the cross for your salvation. Judas is not a shock to Jesus. In fact, Jesus has known all along that it would be Judas. He spent days and weeks and months with Judas. And then he has this meal with Judas. It'd be like you sharing communion this morning with your brother or sister in Christ. Then you go out into the parking lot and then they shoot you and kill you. That is what Jesus is enduring here for your salvation, that he loves you so much he's going to push through the betrayal of Judas. Now, the the betrayal part to me seems horrible. Horrible but the abandonment by the disciples is almost at another level. Look at verse 30, skip down to verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now they've moved from the Passover meal all the way to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said that one would betray, but now he says they will all fall away. Then he quotes from Zechariah 13.7 and says that, that God will strike him, the shepherd, and then all the disciples will scatter like sheep. But it's not a falling away for good for these disciples because there is a tint of hope. Look at verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And though Judas falls away for good, after his resurrection, we'll see the rest of the disciples in Galilee, where there will be a restoration. But good old Peter, he's not buying it. And he sees himself as an exception. If I was one of the disciples, I would not have liked Peter. He's always dogging on me and the rest of the disciples. Look at verse 33. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Isn't that a great thing for Peter to say? He's so bold and arrogant, and he really slams on the other disciples, say, okay, they're probably gonna fall away, but not me. I'm gonna hang with you till the end. And then verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You see, Peter's fall is far more dramatic than the other disciples, because Peter views it as an impossibility. And where the others just bail on Jesus, Peter dramatically denies him. He denies him not once, not twice, but denies him three times. And so Peter thinks it is an impossibility And he says it even more, look at verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. So Peter is digging this deep hole and claiming that he will deny, he will die with Jesus before he will deny him. And did you notice at the very end it says, all the disciples said the same thing too. All of them are chiming in with their allegiance. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, Lord, God, sovereign one of all, you're wrong. None of us are going to deny you. I once read this book by Steve Brown called Three Free Sins. Three Free Sins. He's the host of a radio show, and and one day he decided to offer all the people who called into his radio show three free sins. Now, now why would he do that? The reason why he's doing that is because people often don't want to own their sin. People often don't act like there's anything wrong inside of them with their words or their actions, and so what they need to do instead is to own their sin and see it as a bridge to God's forgiveness in Christ. Because if you're ignoring your sin or you're blaming other people, bringing your up, upbringing, bring, bl- blaming your spouse, you're never owning your sin and you're never coming to the cross of Christ for forgiveness. And when I was thinking about three free sins, I just think about Peter. Here are three sins he wished he never committed, but he did. He did. But you see what Peter did? Peter acknowledged and owned them. When it was all said and done, Peter had his sins forgiven in the costly work of Jesus. And though he jumped off the cliff, in that instance three times, he was forgiven in Christ. So here we have the betrayal of uh, Judas and the desertion of Peter and all the disciples. And in between these two events, we have the Lord's Supper, and before we take this meal together, I think it's important to think about this betrayal and this desertion. And I think it's important for us to examine ourselves before we take this meal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 28, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord but a man must examine himself, and so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Maybe you've heard this verse, these couple verses, tons of times before you take communion. Maybe you don't quite understand what they mean. Well, the original context is the Corinthians and their divisiveness and selfishness within the body of Christ. They needed to examine their hearts and repent of their sins before they took the Lord's Supper. And this is not a meal to be mocked because we don't want to belittle the sacrifice of Christ. And this could be broadly applied to all of us. Before we take this meal, we need to examine ourselves and see if we have unconfessed sin. And I don't mean that you need to go on some secret sin hunt and try hard to remember. But you know if you are not dealing with an area of your life where you're stuck in something you don't need to be in, you're not dealing with it, you're not owning it, and you're not confessing it. Because we need to own our sin, repent of it, and ask for forgiveness before we take this meal. Basically what we're saying is we do not want to play games with God. If we're just going through the motions of taking the meal while not dealing with certain areas of our lives, then we're just playing games with the cross of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We're just playing games and going through religious motions. I'm gonna tell you something that you may have never thought of before, and I think it's very key to get this in your mind before we go to a time of self-examination. What is the difference between Judas and Peter? It's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You see, worldly sorrow feels bad. Did Judas feel bad? He felt bad. Judas did not like the consequences of his sin and he ended up killing himself. Worldly sorrow feels bad for sin. Maybe you feel bad that you're busted, you feel bad that you did that, you feel a little guilty, but worldly sorrow leads to death. But godly sorrow, godly sorrow hates sin. Godly sorrow sees that sin is an offense to God and repents. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And we have Peter exhibiting godly sorrow, where he's owning his sin as his own. He is finding forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. And as you examine yourself this morning, Ask yourself, do I really have godly sorrow that my sin is an offense to God or I, is this a time to just really feel bad for what I've done? My brothers and sisters, godly sorrow is the way to life because it's a repentance that leads to salvation and ongoing forgiveness in the cross of Christ. And this morning as you examine yourself before you take this meal and repent and receive ongoing forgiveness in Jesus, may it also be a time where we remember and rejoice what he has done for us. So this is what we're gonna do. You're gonna do this over the gathering, we're gonna do it in here as well. We're about to have a time of music playing and it's gonna come to a time of examination of your life before the Lord as we take this meal. And maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ before. Maybe you've been all about worldly sorrow and not godly sorrow. This is a time to repent and put your faith in Jesus. But for the rest of us walking with Christ, it's an examination filled with hope, grace, love, and forgiveness because godly sorrow leads to life. So let us all now bow our heads and go to a time of prayer and examination as music is played. And as you examine yourselves, do it in a context of of prayer and thanksgiving and
0: grace. In the midst of this betrayal and abandonment, we have Jesus, who still plans to go to the cross to die for sinners. His love is shocking, His grace is amazing. Let's now look at the details of this Passover meal. At a Passover meal, the host usually explains the symbolism of what everything means as God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. In this Passover meal, it's Jesus, the one who is doing the explaining. And he goes above and beyond the traditional explanation. He brings new meaning to the meal and interprets it in light of himself. Look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. In a stunning departure from the traditional Passover meal, Jesus said that the broken bread represents his body. This broken bread was symbolic of what was going to happen on the cross when he was to be killed. By giving this bread to his disciples, he's indicating that his death will benefit them in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was going to die in the place of sinners in order to save them. We continue with verses 27 and 28. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The wine represents Jesus' blood, which was going to be shed on the cross for many. Not only will the disciples experience forgiveness through his death, but it also extends to the many, to those of us who have faith today. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of examples of animal sacrifices and the pouring out of these, the, the blood. They pointed to a better sacrifice that would be coming, the pouring out of the blood of Jesus on the cross for our salvation. Jesus, the perfect God-man, died in the place of sinners and saved them from sin and the wrath of God through his death on the cross. Jesus refers to it and calls it blood of the covenant. A covenant is a relationship between God and between his people. The spilling of blood inaugurated the covenant. It was so all the way back in the Old Testament as Moses confirmed the covenant with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 24. He sprinkled the blood of animals on the people. God was committed to making the Israelites his people. But time and again, we see that they rebelled They rejected God and his principles and his law. Eventually, the prophet Jeremiah shows up and speaks of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And then hundreds of years later, we have Jesus saying, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his blood to institute a new covenant that secures forgiveness for those who benefit from his sacrifice and in turn turns them into incurable God lovers. The Israelites broke the old covenant over and over and over again. But now through the shedding of blood on the cross, sins are forgiven for good. It's through his blood that we are now forgiven. Accepted by God and partakers of the new covenant. But suffering is not the end of the story, as we see in verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus will drink wine again when he drinks with them in the kingdom of God. Jesus will drink wine at the height of his kingdom reign when he comes back a second time and partakes of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's written about in Revelation chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is looking to the future of eternity. Death will not be the end as there will be a future feast. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that death is not the end, that a future feast is coming, that this feast that we partake of today is temporary. It is for the purpose of remembering and celebrating and for providing a time of our personal forgiveness. And so, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity before us today to celebrate this meal together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.